We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'd like to introduce episode 52 of the Rock Art Podcast. Jose Pateo, who's indigenous himself and hails from Mexico, talking about the ethnobotanicals and this ethnobotanical research, the plants that are used for altered states of consciousness and also shamanism and the realm of syncretism where native religion meets the religion of Christianity as well. Interesting episode, gang. Well, welcome to... Uh, Episode 52. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel Gold, and this is your rock art podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we're blessed and honored to have Jose Patello as our honored guest scholar. He's an anthropologist, a student, a graduate student, and uh, one who's been researching uh, relationships between ethnobotanicals, uh, plants, native plants, and also their various uses in ritual and symbolism, and also their psychoactive qualities by uh, individuals involved as Indian doctors and those that are called uh, shamans and ritual adepts. Hi, Jose. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's been a while since we've had a chance to chat and discuss some of this. Maybe you could uh, explain kind of who you are and how you got involved with this rather interesting, we call it esoteric, but a very specialized and a bit different way of thinking 
in the realm of anthropology, cultural and social anthropology, the study of ethnobotany, and its relationship to some of those disciplines that we have a, a great interest in, ritual, ceremony, uh, native uh, curing. But yeah, I would love to. Like uh, Dr. Gold said, uh, my name is Jose Boteo, and um, I was born in a small pueblo called Mazatán in uh, Nayarit, Mexico. And uh, Mazatán translates, it's a Nahuatl word, which translates to the land of the deer. I am a graduate student in the Master's of Anthropology program at Cal State University of Northridge. And um, throughout my undergraduate career, my research focused mainly on psychoactive and richly significant plants and their uses in Native American cosmologies and worldviews. So now as a graduate student, I'm continuing my research in ethnobotany, you know, in hopes to contribute to the understanding of the roles that all these ethnogenic plants played in the indigenous societies of the Americas. What, what are ethnogenic plants, Jose? What does that mean? Entheogenic plants, yes. It uh, basically means plants that connect you to God or the Theo. So it's uh, psychedelic plants. So these are plants that sometimes are, are used by Indian doctors or even shamans, and they're uh, used to, I guess, uh, create or attain some altered states of consciousness so that the native people, the uh, uh, ritualist, can connect with the supernatural. Is that correct, Jose? That is correct. Yeah. Well, that's that's fascinating. That's sort of a, a an interesting niche unto itself. Please continue. Yeah, so uh, my other research interests, theories of material cultural, oral histories, ethnographic and archaeological fieldwork, and uh, I also enjoy transcribing and translating unpublished archival materials that can um, help me determine the function of all these various plants in cultural contexts. And uh, that's pretty much what my interests are in, uh, in anthropology and in ethnobotany. How does your background growing up in Mexico and in a Pueblo relate to your current sort of effort at uh, being an academic and studying in the field of anthropology? Can you paint us a picture of what it was like and perhaps a, a bit of background about your early years in that Pueblo? Growing up, um, I was always you know, around my family. I grew up there, uh, spent years going back and forth. My Pueblo, we, we retained a lot of our indigenous practices, you know, also mixed in with the, with the Catholic ones, but um, we still maintained a lot of our cultural background. I always grew up interested in just natural medicines uh, with curandero, curanderismo you know, the medicine doctors that we had there. We were pretty isolated from the bigger cities, so we really had to uh, take care of ourselves out there and find ways to um, to better ourselves, you know, medicinally or spiritually. And that always uh, really captivated me. Did you um, have individuals that you met or knew who were uh, cures or doctors or people that anthropologists might call shamans? There were... Um, specific people in the Pueblo that specialized in different areas. So there would be, you know, some would, that would know how to work with, uh, with just plants. There would be like a bone setter for physical injuries, somebody that knew the body physically. And there would be other people, you know, for uh, spiritual cleansing and other aspects of uh, curanderismo. So there were a few people that were known in the Pueblo that, that specialized in, um, in all these different aspects. What sort of uh, ceremonies, rituals, or, or associated activities relate back, I guess, to either the Catholic Church or maybe even the 
the native Indian ways of thinking that were developed in your village? So our, our death rituals and our death ceremonies, I actually wrote a paper on this. There's a lot of uh, syncretism in our death and, and our death rituals. So, you know, we have the, the Catholic aspects, um, you know, we when somebody dies in our pueblo, they are taken to the Catholic temple where they're venerated, where they're prayed upon. And uh, we also have our indigenous aspects where, uh, you know, the burning of copal to to clean the, the area where the body is at. We place an ash cross under the coffin to uh, that symbolizes, again, you know, the Catholic side, but it also symbolizes the four cardinal directions after the body is uh, buried. There's a time, nine days, where the, the deceased family members pray nine days continuously to uh, sort of rid the area of the, the pollutants, I guess you can say, of, uh, of the deceased. And were there any other uh, ceremonies or rituals, feast days that were celebrated through your uh, growing up in Pueblo in terms of uh, native days or those that were part of the, the general I guess hybridization or interfingering of native religion and the Catholic Church. Uh, yes, so there's actually something going on right now in our pueblo. They are venerating the the they call it the Virgen of Natividad, the the Virgin of Nativity. What is that? So we start August twenty sixth, mm-hmm. I want to say, from August twenty sixth to September eighth. We do different things every day. Mm-hmm. So throughout this, these festivities, we're venerating the Virgin of Nativity that from that from our pueblo. Okay. What they do is every day they bring out the Virgin and they parade her around the whole pueblo. Is this a doll? Is this a sculpture? What is the Virgin? Yes, she is a sculpture. Okay. She's a sculpture, and uh, they claim to have found her in the jungles back in the 1500s when the pueblo was established. Okay, and when was the Pueblo established? I've done some research, and I found um, I got in contact with the professor mm-hmm. down in Compostela, Nayarit. Okay, and he allowed me to, to look at some parochial archives, and there was a map showing the uh, my Pueblo, and the map was dated till fifteen twenty three. I want to say. Oh my word! So we have evidence of the Pueblo being there. So it goes back many centuries yes and it still hasn't really changed much so every day like i said we do different yeah we do we do different activities on one of the days there's a a greased pole that we climb okay i think i remember telling yes yes there's a large pole that's greased up Okay, and why is why do you climb the greased pole (laughs) because there's prizes on top (laughs) and it's just you know a way to get the community together together And it's like these village games that we do to celebrate, you know. And it's uh, very, very difficult to climb up that greased pole, correct? <laughs> the main ceremony that we do during these times is um, there's a pilgrimage that we do that everybody, whoever wants to participate, you know, men, women, children can participate as well. They they take a torch and run all the way to the peak Nayari, which is mm-hmm. like an hour and a half drive. And they run all the way there with a lit torch. Mm-hmm. And it's just all the people from my pueblo. And they do this every year. So it's carrying 
carrying the uh, the lit torch there to the peak, and then they, they they run it back. And what does that represent? So what I found is it was um, it represented the uniting of um, of the indigenous pueblos. So they would stop at every at every pueblo on okay. the way there and on uh-huh. the way back. And the and the mountain that they go to does that have some significance as well? Actually, um, it's the peak is it's the city. Okay, I, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, it's see the peak night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they run there to the Catholic temple. Now they they run to the Catholic temple there to the peak, and then they run all the way back. Are there any uh, indigenous places, Indian places, that still figure into uh, these ceremonies or festivals that um, are independent of the Catholic places, or no? I mean, I can. I guess you can say the whole pueblo. Okay. When they're walking the the, the statue of the Virgin Mary around, everybody brings offerings. Ah. You know, offerings of corn, offerings of gifts, oh. offerings of uh, drinks. So, um, you know, there's that aspect. So of that it. harkens harkens back to the original types of activities that were done in uh, pre-European times, correct? Yes. Well, that uh, that takes us through the first segment, and in the in the next segment, let's uh, drill down a little bit further and see if we can begin talking about maybe some of the knowledge that you've gleaned with respect to these uh, ethogens and plants, healing plants, and other plants that are used for uh, entering or connecting with the world of the supernatural and more religious orders. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Thank you. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code ROCKART. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're here for episode 52 with the uh, Rock Art Podcast on your Archaeology Podcast Network. And we have a wonderful guest scholar, Jose Bateo. And Jose is uh, sharing his background, his upbringing, and his expertise 
in the field of anthropology, archaeology, comparative understanding of religion, and most important, ethnobotanical studies that he's done, plants relating to uh, the use of those plants and medicinal properties and how those relate back to Indian doctors, shamans, and other individuals that uh, are ritualists and how they use those plants to perhaps uh, gain a uh, look into the cosmos and connect with the supernatural. Jose, how are you? I'm doing great. Dr. Garfinkel, how are you doing? Thanks so much for uh, coming on board and sharing your knowledge and your background. Shall we uh, delve a bit deeper into the ethnobotanical realm? Yes, let's do it. Give us a peek on your, your research and what it really involved in terms of understanding the native use of plants by the uh, American Indians. For my undergraduate research, I got awarded a research grant through the Students uh, Research Scholars Program. And uh, me and my professor, Patrick O'Neill, uh, decided to do a, an ethnobotanical monograph for the Tubal Labo, the natives of uh, the Southern Sierra Nevadas. So uh, what I did was I recorded the traditional uses of plants according to living Tubal Labo tribe members, their oral histories. And I supplemented that with ethnographic and archaeological uh, literature. So I produced a botanical collection with full documentation, inventory, and metadata. And I collected plant specimens for identification and curation at the Laboratory of Archaeological Sciences at Cal State Bakersfield. Uh, I assigned taxonomic attributes and indigenous vernaculars to these plants as well. And what did you discover from that kind of research? Which plants were perhaps the most interesting or had the most uh, compelling stories and uh, which ones did you find to be most engaging and perhaps important to Native people? The Deteriorideae was a really interesting plant that they used because it's, uh, it was known as the sacred Deteriorideae around here or Toluache was what they called it. This plant was used for to connect to the, to the supernatural and what uh, many Natives around here used it for was to for rites of passages and the coming of age ceremonies for men. So what they did was um, they would go out on these journeys by themselves and uh, take this plant, the Terroridei, and uh, embark on a spiritual journey. What parts of the plants are psychoactive? The whole part of it is psychoactive. The seeds, the leaves, the flowers, and the roots especially. And how would they prepare to use that plant? What, what sort of methods? Would, when would they harvest it? What plant parts would they use? What would they have to prepare it or, or process it in any way? Uh, most of the time it was eating, it was washed and just eating raw. Um, they would make a poultice as well with the roots by smashing the roots up and uh, making a drink out of it. And then when they had these coming of age rites, how would that uh, be handled? Who would administer those rites and what age would those uh, men be uh, given that opportunity? to sort of go through this initiation ceremony? There wasn't really a specific age. It was just um, when they felt it was necessary. So tell us a bit about the ceremony for uh, Datura use and what uh, goes goes on. When do, when do the uh, young men are involved with this? Who administers that ceremony? What do they do? What do they experience? How many days does it take, etc.? What's kind of the kind of the way to understand the use of Datura from your 
research and investigations? So a Toluachi shaman would prepare and administer the sacred medicine. So there's a combination of the plant's leaves, flowers, and roots that were processed with a special Toluachi pestle and mortar. And uh, they were boiled together to make a tea. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, also there's a mandatory three-day fast before consumption. What is the... Um you know, the, the particular young person experience from ingesting that plant? So the terror is a delirium. So on the third day, uh, the participant, the participants of the ceremony who drink the tea, they fell into a 12-hour state of an altered consciousness. So it would be like an out-of-body experience. Wow. Yes. 12 hours. And the purpose of the ceremony was to lift the veil between dimensions and search for a lifelong animal spirit guide. Oh, my word. Hmm. So this is a, a very strong and very um, extensive and transformational experience, I would imagine. Yes, very. That uh, the individuals that experienced this would, would have been rather transformed and it would have made an enormous impression upon them to experience such a dramatic ceremony, I would believe, correct? Yes, correct. And very dangerous as well because... Um... You can't overdose with the tarot, and it will be deadly. So they had to be extremely knowledgeable about the brew and how it's done and how to administer it and how to make sure that the young men that were involved with this ceremony were, do, were handling it properly and, and uh, were reassured at, at the right way and, and that conducted the ceremony with the right kinds of actions and uh, reactions. I would presume that's uh, fascinating. And uh, what other plants or other uh, kinds of elements within your ethnobotanical studies were of great interest to you? So another plant that we found interesting was the, the wild cucumber. And how was that uh, processed and what was that used for? So the wild cucumber, it's a large tuberous vining plant mm-hmm. that is native to, to California and also native to to this to this area as well. Okay. It's also called the, the man root because of the tuberous uh, taproot system that it has. And it played a huge role in uh, puberty rites and passage ceremonies within the Native American groups, not just the ones here of, of Kern County as well. So there was a, the it was a puberty ceremony mm-hmm. for young girls which involved, you know, all mm-hmm. the actual wild cucumber, and also a porous stone called the tosat. I hope I'm pronouncing that the right way. But um, Okay. So they use the stone in combination with the wild cucumber. And uh, these stones are said to come from the ocean and are kept by the tribal chiefs. And then the elder woman is chosen to lead the ceremony and is granted access to the stone. So the wild cucumber, they gather the seed, the, the seed pods, that are, that are produced by the plant and boiled into a concoction, making a, a better tea. And then the stone is placed inside a basket of hot water while the girls stand around it. So before the stone is removed, the participants of the ceremony wait until the stone starts to gurgle and sing. And then after a basket containing the bitter tea is then placed on top of the hot water and then it's ready to be consumed after that. I know that in some parts of California, with uh, other groups that are at least distantly related to the groups from the far Seven Sierras. Mm -hmm. There were 
women's coming of age ceremonies that related to uh, painting of certain imagery of the rattlesnake with a series of diamonds or triangles or etc where they ran to a rock and then they would do this they were mainly talkic instead of uh, just numic or u2 aztec in themselves but it sounds like that that this coming of age ceremony might have some distant connections and similarities between that kind of activity am i correct yeah i would think so so that's interesting any other kinds of uh, interesting ceremonies or elements, discoveries that you feel were uh, compelling and had um, and surprising to you, Jose, with respect to the use of the plants? They could be for pigment or binders. They could be used in paint. They could, but perhaps they could be used in other ways, or maybe just they were part of the the nature of the uh, of the subsistence, the diet. I would think that. Certain key plants were just recognized for their value as edibles, correct? Yes. Which plants were, of, of, of course, maybe the mainstay for some of those groups that you were studying? Are there particular plants that you think were, were staples or ones that uh, had greater importance for the diet of the native people? I mean, the usual staple you know, plant in California would be the acorn. So which species of uh, acorns were the most were the most preferred? Were they the black oak, Quercus cologiae, or were there other species who were uh, more preferred? And what about the uh, pinion pine? Was that uh, part of the repertoire of the native people that you'd had uh, discovered and analyzed and studied? Oh yes, the green pine, the gray pine nuts were, were used a lot, especially with common in combination with tobacco. I see. Yes, the native tobacco was a cultigen. It was a, it was almost a domesticated plant, wasn't it? Yes, they would uh, selectively start uh, breeding the tobacco for you know, for bigger leaves. They would start cultivating it themselves. Yes. I see. And there were two species of uh, wild tobacco that they were that were used there. And wasn't that also used in some sort of a, a way to as an as an altered state of consciousness by um, native? medicine persons as well? Yes, smoking and chewing. Okay. Well, that's about all we have time for at this point for the second segment. Maybe in this uh, last segment, we'll try to drill down to some case studies and some of the actual hands-on efforts that uh, Jose uh, worked on in his uh, research. See you on the flip-flop, gang. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Hello out there in uh, archaeology, rock art, podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with Jose Botello talking about ethnobotany, indigenous cosmology, and the nature of some of his investigations as a grad student and as a native from the Pueblo in Mexico. Let's try to talk about something that interests you, a passion and a discovery that you are interested in pursuing vis-a-vis your initial studies in the world of ethnography and ethnobotany. Go ahead, Jose. 
the floor is yours. <laughs> what really interests me is uh, the use of incense, smoke, and ritual. Fantastic. White sage. You know, it's one of the most widely used medicinal and ceremonial plants by Native American groups, you know, across North America. And that's, that's, that's salvia, isn't it? Yes. Salvia apiana. Okay. And so that is the sage that they use when they burn as incense, as a purifier, and one that uh, we see used extensively, probably through, through much of the Americas, right? Yes, yes. It's used... Uh, Pretty much everywhere, yes. The burning, I mean, it's mostly used for burning, but it's also, uh, it contains antibacterial and antioxidant properties that make it one of the most powerful herbs to fight ailments such as uh, bacterial infections, sore throats, sinus congestion, and uh, stomach indigestion. So it's a powerful plant for healing as well as for purification and ritual use. How is it used ritually? Help me. So it's burned. So the burning of sage, you know, it's a common ceremony. It's considered one of the most sacred plants. So the burning of its leaves produce sacred smoke that cleanses and purifies living spaces. And that's what they, that's what they call smudging, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And that's I, correct. I know that I know that when I went to a, a creation site with native people, they, they would burn the, uh, the sage and we'd all get smudged. They would cover us with the smoke from head to toe, and that would purify us and also uh, show respect for the place that we visited. And we visited uh, a rock art site and a creation site of the uh, native people of the far southern Sierra. These were what's called Kawaiasu. They were southern Paiute. We, we participated in a smudging ceremony through that. Is that something akin to what you're talking about? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And also, um, the act of prayer is always, almost always combined with the burning of sage. Because um, it is believed that, the, that prayers are transformed into the white smoke that is produced from the sage. And um, it's important because by transforming prayer into smoke, the prayers are able to travel through the sky and up into the cosmos. Yes, yes. Uh, let me share some, I mean, I'm going to piggyback, I don't know what you have to say. I know from my own studies on U, what they call Uto-Aztecan cosmology, which would be certainly the uh, people that you hail from, that smoke, the white smoke as it elevates and goes into the heavens, is perceived as holy or sacred for a variety of reasons, isn't it? Yes. And why is that? Because your prayers, your your intentions are are being transformed and, and delivered into um, into the heavens, into the other realm. So it's like you're directly sending your prayers and intentions into the supernatural world. So as they as smoke rises and goes to the heavens, so your prayers sort of piggyback on that same transportation correct correct prayers and intentions tell me a bit more about uh, sage i'm fascinated please uh like i said it's uh it's also a really really good medicine uh, i use it myself for you know when i feel a cold coming on i brew it into a tea i usually smash it grind it with the mortar and pestle 
and mm-hmm. uh, make make a tea out of it. And um, it's a really good medicine for infections, for sore throats, and all that type of uh, all those type of ailments. Well, wonderful. So it sounds like it has many different meanings, all unified in a remarkable plant. I know it has a tremendous smell, doesn't it? It's sort of an overwhelming aromatic smell when you burn it and when you smell it. And it's a, it's kind of a beautiful smell, isn't it? Oh, yes. I love the smell of it, yeah. I know when I travel into the, the desert west, the, the sage, that when you smell it or, or grind it or put it in your hands, it has that beautiful aromatic quality. I also know that um, that the white smoke, the smoke as it uh, goes to the heavens, is of course seen as akin to the other realm. That's this color white is perceived as a holy color. Have you run across that as well? Yes, I have, especially with the uh, with white eagle, uh, eagle feathers. Okay, tell me. So, like you said, the color white, it's akin to to the heavens. It's and as far as eagle feathers, they're they're the highest of flying of, of of the birds. They're they're mm-hmm. they're considered sacred because they're they're able to to fly next to the cosmos, next to the heavens. So with that, with those white feathers, yes. And this is also a white sage. So I guess the sage you're talking about in itself does it look white or is it light in color? It is light in color, and it does have a, a white film to the leaves a whitish gray mm-hmm. and i didn't realize that i didn't realize that there was a white sage or this whitish gray color that also is associated with this plant but that's that's fascinating absolutely so you get the white sage you get the smoke which of course is white you get the white feathers of the uh, eagles and this is all associated with a the celestial realm the the most holiest area, the highest of elevations, and the uh, the realm of the supernatural. What would you uh, want to inform the listeners of the of the podcast? Most importantly, from both your Native American and anthropological background about the nature of your research, what is its significance to them, and what's the message that you receive from doing the work that you do? And why does it motivate you to do that? What should they have learned from listening to this podcast? And what do you think they need to know about the nature of the uh, natural world, the plants, the animals, and the things that you've learned? The ethnobotany, I mean, it's important because, you know, certain plants that are used by these indigenous cultures might contain, you know, properties, alkaloids, or compounds that are forgotten or unknown by modern society, you know, um, there's a lot of that we can still learn from all these plants, you know, different medicines are always coming out. A lot of the medicines that we have are because of ethnobotanical research. So there's the realm of discovery, correct? Yes. And potential discoveries from studying the plants could help in terms of various pharmaceuticals, healing properties. I know that, that these days, they are now using some of the psychoactive plants to help people transform their lives and um, heal from some very debilitating diseases, including those that are uh, mental health issues from severe depression and other things along those lines. And it happens to be very, very effective. 
You've heard about that, haven't you? Oh, yes, and I completely agree. Um, you know, this ethnobotanical research is opening the doors for the research on psychedelic drugs, on mental health. You know, the psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybe, cubensis, um, peyote, lofofora, walimsii, all these medicines are proving to, to be of great help with uh, mental health. And even besides that, people who are severely depressed or, in fact, in some cases, have diseases that modern medicine cannot seem to cure and are given a death sentence. We had uh, one gentleman who's a neuroscientist who had cancer throughout his body and went to uh, South America to visit with the shamans and was cured of uh, cancer from uh, using the altered states of consciousness, ethnobotanicals, and uh, came back uh, completely healthy. And uh, this kind of work is now much more common than it's ever been before. Yes, I agree. Well, I guess that's all we have time for tonight. Jose, thanks so much for putting up with us and uh, contributing your knowledge and perspective to the uh, world of the Archaeology Podcast and Rock Art Podcast, episode 52. Can you imagine? What a concept. God bless you, Jose. See you on the flip-flop gang next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.